right, folks, Week in Review time, the second show from our new studio here in the greater Columbia, South Carolina area. Now, I've obviously decked out a little differently this week, you know, going old school with the Philadelphia Phillies look here. We've got a big week to cover, so let's dive right into it. A lot going on. Murdoch accountability, it continues to roll. We're going to dive into the very latest on this most important phase of the Murdoch saga, which is holding people and, as I'm going to talk about in a minute, institutions accountable for their conduct. I'm also going to sit down with our research director, Jen Wood, about a story out of Richland County, South Carolina, a true tragedy that had a big court hearing this past week, an unsatisfactory outcome for the family of a young man who lost his life a little over three years ago. We're going to talk about that. Last but not least, a ton of political news this week. Obviously, the big presidential debate. We're going to dive into who did well, who did poorly, who showed up, who didn't show up. But before that, some major developments in a huge political scandal involving a congressman here in the Palmetto State. All of that and more heading your way on the Week in Review. All right, so i got to be honest. As we start this segment, I am really and truly hoping that this is the last Week in Review that we lead again with the Murdochs. I, I'll be honest, I've got a little bit of Murdoch fatigue, and I'm glad that we are now well into the accountability phase of this story. I've said it on several previous shows. We, we had the incidents and investigations. We had the trials. Now we're moving into the accountability phase of this ongoing story. And we saw some of that this week. We saw it at a hearing in Kingstree, South Carolina, Williamsburg County, the middle literally of nowhere here in the Palmetto State, the rural Palmetto State, one of the poorest counties in South Carolina. But it was at the courthouse there in Kingstree that we finally got what I think was one of the first tastes of real accountability on the financial side of this. Now, obviously, Alec Murdoch convicted on the double homicide charges against him, the murders, the horrific murders of his wife and son down there in Colleton County, found guilty, sentenced to life in prison. So that was the major moment in this story. But the financial crimes, the theft of millions of dollars from family members, from former clients, from friends, uh, Murdoch was a just one-man crime spree. But it wasn't just one man, was it? There were others involved. And they have begun to get their comeuppance. And again, we saw last fall, Russell Lafitte convicted at the federal level. He was sentenced earlier this month in Charleston, scheduled to report next month for a seven-year prison sentence at the federal level. Corey Fleming, Murdoch's former best friend, the godfather of his surviving son, Buster Murdoch, sentenced to four years in federal prison earlier this month. Well, both Fleming and Lafitte appeared in the courtroom in King Street, where the prosecutorial spitball fight that we've been watching unfold over the last few months between state and federal prosecutors roared into the open. And folks, you've heard of the movie Empire Strikes Back. Well, this was the state strikes back. And Creighton Waters, lead prosecutor for the state of South Carolina on all these Murdoch-related crimes. I've, I've seen Creighton Waters in court on many occasions, people. Uh, obviously, the world saw him during that double homicide trial, his stellar opening argument, his questioning of Alec Murdoch. Guy just a super organized, super quick-witted, thinks on his feet, adapts. I don't know if I've ever seen Creighton Waters better than he was at this hearing in Kingstree. 
So what happened? I want to set the stage for you. You've got Corey Fleming standing there in his Oh Brother, Where Art Thou jumpsuit from the Al Cannon Detention Center in Charleston County, South Carolina, where, where he's being held, awaiting his federal placement. He's sitting there in the courtroom with his attorney, Debbie Barbier, and he stands up and, to his credit, Corey Fleming, the only one in this entire situation who has taken some accountability for what he's done on the record criminally. Murdoch confessed to a lot during his trial, but he has yet to take criminal accountability. But Fleming stood up, pleaded guilty to all the charges against him, straight up. No deal. Straight up pleaded guilty to all those charges. Nearly two dozen of them. Sat down, and I think he and his attorney were expecting Mr. Waters to stand up and say, well, Your Honor, he's pleaded guilty, and we look forward to the sentencing hearing down in Beaufort in September. That is not what happened. Creighton Waters methodically, methodically exposed Corey Fleming for being not a patsy, not somebody who didn't know, not somebody who was suckered or hoodooed was the word he used by Alec Murdoch, but an active participant in the theft of money from vulnerable clients of Alec Murdoch. It was an evisceration, an absolute evisceration. Waters documented in detail how Fleming stole when his personal accounts were getting low, when he needed money to pay the IRS, to pay his mortgage, pay for video games, apparently, one of the items listed. But he also talked about how Fleming and Murdoch hopped a jet to the College World Series using money that they stole from an account of Pamela Pinckney, the mother of Keem Pinckney, the deaf quadriplegic whose, I would say, suspicious death several years ago was one of the keys, the gateways to these financial fleecings. But it was it was a stirring performance by Creighton Waters. And as it was, again, unfolding in that King Street courtroom, I spoke at one point with two attorneys who were there for family members, Justin Van Burke, who represents Pamela Pinckney, and then Eric Bland, who represents the heirs of Gloria Satterfield, Murdoch's former housekeeper, whose settlement funds were stolen by Murdoch and Fleming. And both of those gentlemen, I thought their comments were incredibly insightful. Justin Bamberg specifically told me that this was a precedent-setting event that this was the most egregious legal conduct South Carolina has seen in a century, and that the sentences imposed in this case would set the standard moving forward. Eric Bland echoed that and talked about how important it was that Creighton Waters was putting this all on the record. And in fact, Bland told me, you can't have people come in at the 11th hour and 59th minute and say, I'm sorry. No, it has to be laid on the table what they did. And you know what? Both those gentlemen, absolutely, 100% right. In fact, Bland spoke of it, the need for an educational moment for the bar. And he is absolutely right about that, too. And guess what? Creighton Waters delivered that education with, again, a stirring performance in the courtroom. And I want to cut real quick. We've got an excerpt to just a bit of his performance there in King Street, but 
Let's take a look at that educational moment for the South Carolina Bar. These two men looked at the cases they had as if it were a pantry and they could just open the door and goodies would just drop out. If it hadn't been for the good work of the state grand jury staff and SLED and other partners, there would never be accountability in state court that there's going to hopefully be today. And Mr. Fleming might be on his boat wearing fruit He might be on his what? On his boat. On his boat. Yes. Your Honor, the first uh, document I believe I handed up was a summary of all the loss amounts. And just to summarize, we've been through a lot, but I just want to go through those numbers very quickly and the indictments they represent, and then I will sit down. But for 2021 GS 4730, we have the three Forge Satterfield checks. $403,500 is the first one, January 2019. The $2.9 million check, which is May of 2019. The $118,000 check, which is October of 2020, when they did that very suspect simulation of dismissal. And then the 113.8 that was remaining. And the total there of money is $3,597,231.95 just for that aspect of the crimes that Mr. Fleming estimated. Now, there is one thing Bland said to me at this hearing, too, that I also want to draw attention to. Because as Waters went through his litany of the foreknowledge of defendant Corey Fleming, he talked specifically about how Fleming knew he knew that what Alec Murdoch was doing was irregular and wrong and that he actively effectuated transactions to help pull those illegal outcomes off. But what Bland told me after that hearing, and again, I, you know, Bland and I go back and forth. We go round and round sometimes on social media, but the credit where credit's due, he made an incredibly insightful point. Why did the judge not know? Why did Carmen Mullen, who signed off on that deal, why did she not ask the questions? Wait a minute, you're billing over $100,000 in fees for a case that nobody's being deposed, that isn't in any sort of active negotiation? Or I mean, What's the deal? Didn't ask, just signed off on it. And we have said from the beginning of this scandal, crime and corruption there was crime, but there's underlying systemic abuse of this system. And we have not seen the accountability for that. So again, maybe maybe we will do Murdoch blocks early and often in the future, because I'm telling you people, we've been seeing the accountability on the crime front, but we are still waiting for the accountability on that corruption side. And Judge Carmen Mullen, Judge Perry Buckner, a lot of these judges who were thick as thieves with the Murdochs, we need to continue to keep the heat on that side of this investigation, just as we continue to keep the heat on the drug investigation, where the money went. Because again, these are all key threads of this story that have yet to be pulled. So again, I, you know, I started the segment off thinking I'm tired of the Murdochs, but here I go. You start digging into it again, and man, they just suck you back in. But it's not about them, ultimately. It's about the integrity of the court system in South Carolina and whether or not we can trust the justice that it dispenses. 
And if you follow this news out for any amount of time, you know that right now we can't. We can't. And that's not just about the Murdoch's people. That's about powerful lawyer legislators, one of whom, by the way, was in the courtroom appearing on behalf of Russell Lafitte, Todd Rutherford, sitting there at that table. And in fact, Creighton Waters made the remark, hey, if this guy's representing him, we're not even going to be able to get a hearing on this thing until next summer. Because that's the kind of power they hold. They don't have to show up in court if they don't want to. Got to restore that faith in the system. Because right now it isn't there. And so again, we've talked about it before. The crime and corruption saga. We're getting accountability on the crime. Now it's time to get accountability for the corruption. All right, so I'm here with Jen Wood, our research director. Jen, you have been just filing some amazing reports in the last couple of weeks on FitzNews.com, but the one that is standing out to me the most was earlier this week. Take us back, May 16, 2020, and this fatal boat crash in Richland County, South Carolina. What Walk us through what happened. You know, this story was hard for me to write as a mother, just because, you know, it just so many things went wrong in the course of, you know, the emergency response and investigation that it was it was really difficult to read through everything and write it. But, you know, the the victim in this incident, his name was Jaden Phillips, and he had turned 19 the day before on May 15th, and him and his father went um, to to the river in Richland County camping. Um, they have, you know, river boats. It was something they all did together where they would take the boats up the river, set up a campsite and just spend the weekend with friends. So they had that, they had arrived at about noon that day and set up camp and Jaden went with um, a group of friends down to a sandbar in the river. Um, you know, I think it was, you know, party spot. I'm from Michigan. That's kind of what we did in Michigan too. We would find the sandbar in the lake and, you know, everybody would hang out, anchor the boats and they spent the afternoon there. Um, sounds like the man that was driving his, he was 30 years old. His name is Irvin Eckrod. And he, they, he had been drinking, according to witnesses, allegedly drinking all afternoon. And they, decided around 7.30 it was time to pack up the boats and head back to camp for dinner and started heading back in the river boats. Um, Franklin's boat was ahead of another friend's boat who was behind them. And reportedly, um, what was reported is as he was driving down the river, he hit a branch or a tree, which came, came to find out the branch was actually a tree that was laying across the river while driving, and Jaden sustained some serious head injuries. So when his friend caught up to him, he realized how hurt Jaden was. He had been, you know, bleeding from the head, was gasping for air. So his friend said, "You take him back to the boat launch." And call 911 on your way there. Tell them to meet you there with emergency rescue ambulance. And I'm going to go get his dad at the campsite. So what happened, what we know is Franklin turned the boat around and went back towards the boat launch. But he never called 911. So when they arrived, um, bystanders saw them pull up to the boat launch. And fortunately, one was... 
uh, paramedic and jumped right in the boat, saw what was going on and told people to call 911. They called 911 and he rendered first aid in, you know, in the interim. But the problem, what happened when they called 911 is where they were located on the river was right about 500 feet from Calhoun County's border. So the people that called 911, their calls got bounced around as they tried to figure out whose jurisdiction this was in. Well, it's um, also, it's close to Lexington County, close right. to Orangeburg County. Yep, it just bounced around and, and it was in the river. So it was also a DNR, it could, it could have been a DNR response. They finally got, you know, figured out that it was Richland County, got got first responders dispatched out to the location, um, but it caused some delays. They had trouble finding the location, um, drove past it a couple of times, and finally, when they finally got there, there were additional issues. So it wasn't communicated the severity of his injuries, and they needed three people in in the ambulance to transport him back to the hospital safely. So they had to wait for a third person to arrive to actually get him on the way to the hospital. I mean, it just, I'm from start to finish. So many things went wrong. Um, Richland County Sheriff's department where they responded as the officers and it, from what I could tell from reading through the incident reports is when the, you know, the officer didn't <clears throat> ask a lot of questions. Um, witnesses were saying that, that the driver had been drinking and there was no field sobriety test done. There was no breathalyzer done. And when Jaden left in the ambulance, the officers left shortly after there was no investigation done as to what caused this accident until a week later. So you're telling me this this accident happens. Nine one one obviously should have been called immediately. Um, right. They ideally would have been there the second the boat pulls in. Right. But none of that happens, and then there's no investigation into whether or not anyone is culpable for these. Serious injuries? Absolutely none until a week later. DNR allegedly was notified um, by by a citizen that there had been a fatal accident who was inquiring about the status of the investigation. And they began their investigation at that point. Now, state law says that if there is an accident, South Carolina state law says that if there is an accident in a boat, DNR has jurisdiction over the investigation and by law must be notified immediately. So and that it didn't happen here either, did it? Did not happen. So, you know, it was responsibility of Richland County Sheriff's Department to notify the DNR that there was an accident in their jurisdiction. And Jen, we're again, I want to just be clear to our audience, we're reporting these are allegations, right. most of which have been contained in a civil wrongful death lawsuit filed by Jaden's family, but there was also the reason that we are addressing it now. There was another uh, court-related uh, hearing this week, this past right. week, related to this story. Tell us a little bit about that hearing. So the hearing that happened um, was—it's called the coroner's inquest, and it's fairly rare in South Carolina for these to occur. 
And the purpose of these hearings is the coroner calls it, this, they, are, they are given subpoena power in the course of this. They can subpoena any witness they want. Uh, witnesses that are subpoenaed, they have to show up, but they are allowed to plead the fifth. So they, if they feel as though they're going to say something that's going to incriminate them, they do have the right to plead the fifth. And there's um, a jury there too. It's not, yep, it's, uh, it, okay. it is in front of a jury. Um, and the goal of the hearing is to determine what the cause of death for the individual is. Was it an accident? Was it homicide? Was it suicide? And the coroner, coroner Rutherford called the hearing because she did not believe that the injuries Jaden sustained that caused his death were were in line with what was reported that happened. So Eckrat had reported he hit a branch. But, you know, if you look at the pictures from the accident, he, he ran into a tree, a tree yeah, laying pulling, across the river. We're pulling one of these up right now. Uh, Dylan Nolan, our special projects director, has got that tree there. Right. That's not a branch by any mm -mm. stretch of the imagination. And, you know, I'm looking at you know, the autopsy report and his injuries. It, his injuries were on both the front and the back of his head. So it, it just, you know, if you're going towards something and don't duck in time, typically you're only going to have severe injury on, you know, either the front of your head if you're facing forward or the back if you're facing backwards. But his were on both sides. And he also had mm. abrasions that looked like road rash on his chest. There were just the injuries did not make sense. It, they didn't line up with what was said happened. What did the inquest ultimately determine, Jen? So after having all of the witness come forward, um, with the exclusion of some who did not respond to the subpoena, which surprised me, including. Uh, Irvin Eckrat, who was driving the boat, um, and Richland County Sheriff's Department investigator and DNR investigator, they did not appear to testify. Wait, wait a minute. You're telling me the guy that drove the boat and the two lead investigators on the case did not show up for the inquest? They did not. So I'm not sure if it's due to the pending litigation as their agencies are named in the lawsuit. I, I, I don't know if, you know, but. Uh, Seton Tucker, who hosts the Impact of Influence podcast, was at the hearing, and she said that the family clearly to her appeared like that was a surprise to them that the officers didn't show up. They they weren't notified that they wouldn't appear to testify. They they were very shocked and confused by that. So I'm not sure what the reason was, but no, they did not respond to those subpoenas to testify. You would think at the very least show up and if you can't say something due to pending litigation or if you want to as you just did uh indicated assert your fifth amendment rights but at the right. very least show up and say why you're not answering these questions that is uh, yeah they weren't the only you said some friends of friends um, we'll put that in yeah some friends also failed to appear um three friends i can't remember their names off top of my head but witnesses that were there that weekend and had information didn't appear and they ended up ultimately the jury ruled it an accident, yes, yet again, but there was no medical personnel that testified to his injuries. There was no, you know, EMT personnel that was testified. It just it felt to me like just I don't understand why they would call that kind of hearing 
make the ruling without all of the information. I don't, it was just sad. You know, my mind is going back. This news outlet has covered a, a ton of these boating accidents. And obviously, as you and I both know very well, a boat crash was the impetus for a pretty big story we covered here on Fitz News, the Murdoch Crime and Corruption Saga, which we just talked about in the first segment. But Jen, I'm thinking back to that story of Morgan Kaiser, whose whose father lost his life in a, a boating under the influence uh, crash where another boat literally plowed over the pontoon boat he was on with his wife. His wife lost her leg. He lost his life. And their daughter, Morgan, uh, she's turned into a crusader for boat safety here in South Carolina. But Jen, there were, obviously that was an alcohol-related crash, according to the authorities that investigated it. This crash, didn't you say, Jen, in your report, there were beer cans littering this boat? All over the boat. And no investigation. And no investigation to determine if it was alcohol-related. I mean, I looked at it, you know, you think of a car accident. So say a a car hits a tree and the passenger dies. Mm -hmm. Do you think the police are going to pull away without trying to determine if the driver was impaired or if, you know, what the circumstances are that caused them to crash into that tree? That would never happen. It's just, Mm -hmm. and boats are, you know, people don't think about boats they're more dangerous than cars. There's no seatbelts available. There are no brakes. When you mm. take off in a boat, you're, the, the front of the boat goes up and you can't see over it. So, I mean, boats are, to me, it's scary to think of people driving boats under the influence at all. Mm. Well, and again, South Carolina, home to obviously 187 miles of coastline. We've got tons of rivers. We've got lakes. So boating is part of the culture here. And mm-hmm. Jen, this is something, if if not some education of the public here, uh, boater safety like Morgan Kaiser has been pushing. But more importantly, we, we need some standardization on these investigations. Right. Uh, because we're never going to have the sort of deterrent accountability if a cop looks at a boat full of beer cans and just says, okay, well, the guy's on his way to the hospital, whatever. And again, I'm not saying that's obviously this is what's been alleged in that wrongful death suit. You know, again, we're going to continue to investigate this. But, Jen, there seems to be a real problem here with how these crashes are investigated. Right. And how DNR is notified in the process of notification, timing of notification. I mean, the, the boat crashes are comp- complicated investigations because there are no clear, you know, lanes in the road. There, I mean, it's not they're not. They take a specialized kind of investigator. Indeed. And just a few weeks ago, we filed a report of another crash in Kershaw County, a fatal crash where alcohol was allegedly involved. And we're still waiting for answers in that case and accountability in that case, which apparently has a political component to it as well. As so many of these tragic accidents in South Carolina, they quickly turn political, don't they, Jen? They sure do. You know, whether it's Alec Murdoch flashing a badge at the hospital or, you know, a relative of, you know, one of the victims or a relative of one of the people who should be held accountable. Too many times we see it. Jen, thank you. That was, I tell you, I've I've read a lot of stories um, the last few weeks from you 
just amazing. The Unsolved Carolinas, for example, we'll talk about that in a minute on this show, but this was one that really got to me and I could tell you said it got to you as well, didn't it? Yeah, there's definitely those stories that, you know, as as a human and as a parent, just, just you know, make your stomach turn and make your heart hurt. And this was one of them. Well, Jen, thank you for bringing it to everyone's attention. Thank you for pushing for accountability for everybody. Most importantly, thank you for pushing for answers and truth for the family of Jaden Phillips. Of course. All right, so obviously a huge week politically this past week. Nationally, here in South Carolina, the big Republican presidential debate up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the first debate of the 2024 presidential cycle. But if you hear the former president tell it, it was a vice presidential debate. Donald Trump throwing a little shade on those eight GOP contenders who stood on the stage there in Milwaukee making their case. We covered that event. We led up to it with our Palmetto Political Stock Index. We're going to get into that in a minute. But the big political news in South Carolina this week broke Friday morning here on FitzNews.com, an exclusive report detailing the latest chapter in the ongoing scandal surrounding South Carolina Congressman William Timmons. Now, Timmons, of course, a third-term congressman from a fifth-generation family that literally made Greenville what it is today, if you hear them tell it, but a hugely influential family up there in the South Carolina upstate. Timmons, richer than God, uh, tremendously influential. But this is a guy who, and again, I don't know any other way to describe this, because when we cover sex scandals here at Fitz News, we have a very simple rule, which is, wait a minute, we don't really cover sex scandals here at Fitz News. The rule is pretty simple. Unless you are wasting tax money, abusing your office, or in, in some other way engaged in attendant criminality, we tend to let you bump uglies as you deem appropriate. That's your business. Again, unless you're not breaking the law, wasting, wasting our money, do what you want to do in your personal life. But Timmons, last spring pushed this scandal out there on his own. An unsolicited statement sent to this news outlet, exclusively to this news outlet, which again, designed, in my opinion anyway, to push this scandal out into the open. Why did he want to do that? Well, apparently he was done with his marriage and felt the only way to really be done with it was to have a big public embarrassing uh, embarrassing sex scandal. So anyway... Using the media then, Tim has very quickly lost control of this drama. And the reason he lost control of this drama is apparently the woman he slept with, let me say this, let me, let me see if I can find a way to say this, he slept with the wrong woman as far as it relates to her husband. Some husbands will, will kick your ass for sleeping with, with their wife. Ron Rollis, the husband of Paula Dyer, William Timmons mistress, has been kicking this congressman's ass all over the upstate ever since this thing happened. And not literally. This has been a sustained barrage. And it started last summer at a church that this guy purchased and then painted pink. And we went up there, and I'm telling you, I've covered some crazy stuff here in South Carolina politics. I've been in the middle of some crazy stuff here in South Carolina politics. I've never seen anything quite like the pink church. Never seen anything quite like this. West End of Greenville. Ron Rollis painted this church pink. 
And I'm telling you, we were sitting out there waiting, waiting to start our interview with him. That this was where we were sent to do our interview with Ron. And there's TV crews pulling up, everyone driving by, taking pictures. It was literally the talk of the town, which is exactly what Ron Rollis wanted. But we get in there, and Rollis talks very intimately, very personally about his battle with Timmons, or rather the battle that Timmons has inserted himself into, which is this divorce and custody action involving his mistress, Paula Dyer. Now, you've all seen the Paula Dyer pictures, folks. Those were published recently, and those involve we're told another extramarital dalliance involving this woman who apparently has wrecked no shortage of homes. But it was this particular exchange that caught my attention when Ron Rollis came out the other day with an exchange that really caught my attention because, again, a sex scandal is one thing. Okay, that's one thing. And as we mentioned, unless you literally thrust it upon us, we're, we're, we're not going to go there. But in this case, Timmons has sent some text messages to Rollis, bordering, I mean, let's forget bordering, they're threatening, and they're related to this court here. And I wanted to pull some of these up because we reported on one of these messages recently, but this week, Thursday afternoon at the Greenville County Republican Women's Club, on the seats of roughly two dozen members of that club, I don't know exactly how many people show up to these events, I don't go to the Poinsett Club in Greenville, believe it or not, I know you would think I would with my baseball jersey and backwards hat, but I don't get many invitations to the Poinsett Club. But the women at that event, at least two dozen of them, were told, received a, a handout related to Rollis's case. And on this handout, there are text messages, and we're pulling it up here so you can look at them. So I'm going to read some of these texts now. And as I mentioned, we've already published a few of these, and the one that we published last week was pretty damning because in, in this text, Congressman Timmons sending a message to the husband of his mistress, threatening him to settle a custody divorce case. And he sends him this document, which includes his past criminal history, which basically is like jaywalking and some skateboarding mishap, you know, nothing serious. But he tells him, that will be considered at your trial. As I have repeatedly said, evidence, facts, and law, I cannot stress how much I believe y'all should work it out without a trial. I do not think that you will like the outcome, and it will be better for you if y'all come to an agreement. Again, this is it's like a mob message here. But we go into some of these messages, and the ones that were released this week are even more damning. And they extend this thing. They kind of metastasize this thing. And I want to read one of them. One of these messages, Timmons says to him, you leave me the fuck alone. Again, that's not me. That's the congressman. He says, it says to him, trials are never fun. You won't like the outcome. It will be better if y'all come to an agreement. Again, the same thing. But better for who? It sounds like it's better for the congressman that this thing gets over. But again, he keeps it up. It will not end well for you. It will not go well for you. And in another message, he's texting a witness to these proceedings and says to them, and I quote, that they need to discuss Ways to manage an unreasonable subpoena. Hmm. Managing an unreasonable subpoena. That sounds suspiciously like, let's talk about ways to hide things from the court or lie to the court. And again, let's bear in mind, William Tim is not only a U.S. congressman, he's a former prosecutor, practicing attorney. He is an officer of the court in South Carolina. That's incredibly troubling 
language, particularly to send to a witness. Again, in the custody case of your mistress. They talk in another message about the money that Timmons has paid out, $50,000 in one installment at least, subsidizing his mistress's legal case here. Confirming again what we previously reported. Even more troubling, Timmons to that witness says, and I quote, I never asked you to do anything improper. I did not do anything wrong. I want nothing to do with this. I only want my life back. But then later he threatens this person that he will file legal action against them if any of their accusations get out regarding his tampering or alleged tampering in this case. Just unbelievable involvement. Now you think to yourself, okay, what would motivate a sitting U.S. congressman to be this stupid, to put this stuff in writing to the husband of his mistress? Why would he be that stupid? Well, your immediate reaction, okay, well, it's you're blinded by love. You're thinking with the wrong head, so to speak. But Timmons actually tells us what his motivation is in one of these texts. Quote, My motive is that I am running for re-election, and your plan of attacking me and my family to somehow change the outcome of your child custody fight is going to go poorly. Hmm. Again, we've covered a lot of stuff here, but this, this story takes the cake. And once again, all of it stemming from a guy who self-started this thing. None of this would have ever come to light were it not for William Timmons trying to manipulate the situation in the public arena to get out of his marriage. That is what started this sex scandal, but it very quickly escaped William Timmons' ability to control. And it is now, you read these messages, folks, I... I don't even know where to start with these because it's clear there are implied threats. And he talks about how this will go poorly for Rawls. Where does he, does he have influence over the process? Well, let's think about that because remember in South Carolina, we got, we're a state where judges set murderers free routinely, set them out on bond on murder charges if they hire a powerful lawyer legislator anyway. But Timmons spent three months in jail saying mean things about Timmons on social media. Three months in jail with a murderer. Accused murderer anyway. Three months in jail for saying mean things on social media. That to me is the best evidence that there is influence over this process. Now, as we previously mentioned, this thing is heading to trial. There is a trial. Tim, uh, William Timmons, very much a part of it. Rollis v. Rollis, it's in Greenville Family Court. We've submitted a Request to be there, to bring you as much of that as we possibly can. And certainly there are, as we mentioned in the last show, minors involved. We won't get into any of that. But this demands, at the very least, at the very least, an investigation by the Supreme Court's Office of Disciplinary Counsel into William Timmons and his involvement in potentially tampering with witnesses and potentially threatening a party to a lawsuit involving his mistress. And again, count on this news outlet as we have from the very beginning to cover this story because it's not just about an affair, as I have said all along, but it is about a congressman attempting to manipulate the press, the courts, and his constituents. So we said we're going to talk about the big presidential debate in Milwaukee this past week, but before we get to that, let's, for a second, just talk about the guy who wasn't there, 
former U.S. President Donald Trump. Now, Trump obviously had a lot going on this week. He was in Atlanta, Georgia, appearing for his fourth arraignment on criminal charges. He's already been up to D.C., Florida, New York. Now he's in Atlanta uh, to answer to criminal charges filed against him, a host of different allegations against the former president. But he didn't show up at the debate. There was some discussion about whether he would, whether he wouldn't. He ultimately decided just before the big event not to show up. But in typical Trump fashion, ended up stealing the show anyway. And he did that through an exclusive interview with Tucker Carlson, former Fox host, who is now interviewing folks over on the platform Twitter, or X as it is now being called. Now, this is an interview that, according to the stats on the site, has been watched 254.8 million times. Now, again, I don't know how many people are in America now, 300-something million. I assume this is part of a global audience or... uh, Maybe a few people have watched that thing twice, but nevertheless, a huge audience, one that by any measure is dwarfing the audience that actually watched the Republican debate. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells you Trump is still driving this narrative. And if you look at the polls in this race, let's go back to late March. Late March, this was a competitive race, or had the makings at least of a competitive race. Trump is polling at that point in time in the low 40s. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who has a According to conservatives, a wonderful record of accomplishment down there in the Sunshine State. He's pulling at about 30%, but then the indictments drop. Then the indictments drop, and all of a sudden you start to see those numbers separate. Trump starts climbing, DeSantis starts dropping off, and we are now at a point today, Trump 41.1% ahead of DeSantis, according to the aggregate polling averages from Real Clear Politics. That is a huge gap, some would say an insurmountable gap, which is why I'm referring to Trump on my news outlet anyway as the presumptive Republican nominee in 2024, because I don't see how anybody bridges that gap. Just don't see that it's possible. But let's think about that for a minute, because if you read the Palmetto Political Stock Index, which we put out every week, every Sunday morning, you go to fitznews.com, you can see who's rising, who's falling, who's making moves, who's stuck in neutral, who's going in reverse. But Trump has been steadily rising on that index in recent weeks, and you can see that in those polls. Again, a race that many thought months ago would be close, would be competitive. Trump has shredded the competition up to this point in the race. Now, South Carolina obviously plays a huge role in this process, and there were two South Carolina politicians that were on the stage in Milwaukee. One of them, folks are saying, redeemed herself, acquitted herself pretty well, and that's former Governor Nikki Haley. Haley had arguably the best jab of the night when she went after Vivek Ramaswamy, telling him he had no foreign policy experience, and it showed. Pretty good dig. Now, again, I would argue, uh, what kind of foreign policy experience does Haley have other than wanting to literally start World War III every possible chance she gets? If that's experience, folks, I don't know if America needs any of that. But anyway, it was a good dig for Haley. I'm sure her neocon masters really appreciated it. But Haley was decisive. She was strong on that stage, a very solid performance for the former South Carolina governor. Now, contrasting that, some would say, would be the performance of Tim Scott. And Tim Scott did not have a bad night in Milwaukee. Let's let's go ahead and get that out of there. It wasn't he didn't have a bad night. Uh, they asked him an odd question about spending, which you got a bunch of folks on that stage who could very easily have been dinged for being on the fiscally liberal end of the Republican spectrum, Tim Scott more in the middle. So it was a little 
odd that he got dinged with that by by the moderators of this event, but wasn't very much in command in answering that, very much in command the, the entire debate night, but there was no breakthrough moment for Tim Scott. And as we're going to note in this coming week's Palmetto Political Stock Index, this is important because a few weeks ago, Tim Scott seemed to be poised to make a move in this race. With Ron DeSantis falling, his poll numbers falling off the charts, there was a lot of Republican money gravitating to Tim Scott, who, again, has really been the conscious of this race, generally regarded as a good guy, promoting faith. You know, a lot of folks rallying to his candidacy, but that moment appears to have passed, and Scott did absolutely nothing on that debate stage to separate himself from the field. And in fact, I would argue Haley did a much better job of making moves that could potentially, again, potentially, separate her from that lower tier of GOP candidates. But again, to find out who's on the move in South Carolina politics, and increasingly, as South Carolina politicians make their moves on the national stage, keep it tuned to our Palmetto Political Stock Index published every Sunday morning. Myself and Mark Powell put that together for you. Be sure to check out the next edition coming this Sunday. All right, that's a wrap for this week's edition of the Weekend Review. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Once again, if you want to support what we're doing here at Fitz News, please go to fitznews.com, subscribe. Your support, your subscription helps power everything we're doing to hold folks accountable here in South Carolina and beyond. So please go to fitznews.com, subscribe there, but also check out Fitz Files. If you haven't done it yet, we've been rolling on this. We dropped our sixth episode this past week related to the Rose Petal murder, a true crime saga out of Greenville, South Carolina that has taken so many twists and turns. But Fitz Files, one of our newest podcast offerings, check that out on Apple, Spotify, wherever you download your podcast, Fitz News, your home for true crime, wherever you podcast. Last but not least, I also want to bring up Unsolved Carolinas. We cover a lot of high-profile stories here at Fitz News, a lot of cases that draw national, even international attention. But there's a ton of cases that have been forgotten. And folks, those victims matter every bit as much as the victims in those international sensations. Unsolved Carolinas is dedicated to covering those stories and solving those cases. Our research director, Jen Wood, leading that charge. So check that out on our website, fitznews.com. Thanks for tuning in. We will catch you next week on the Week in Review.